I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with another edition of The Showroom, a partnership between Convo by Design and Walker Zanger. This episode features the talent behind iconic groundbreaking architecture firm Dugali Oberfeld. <laughs> Matthew Dugali and Mauricio Oberfeld are the talent and skill behind Dugali Oberfeld. Matt and Mo have a partnership that, when explored in detail, exemplifies a one plus one equals three scenario. There is undetectable value in the partnership itself that has resulted in some wonderful work, unexpected design, and, and the type of projects that inspire the work of others. This is Convo by Design with The Showroom. And in The Showroom this week, uh, Dugali and Oberfeld, that is Matthew Dugali and Mauricio Oberfeld. Are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, please do. So you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design pretty much everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So make sure to check it out. Speaking of partnerships that transcend visible value, that is how I would describe my partnership with Walker Zanger, presenting partner of Convo by Design. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. Welcome everyone to the showroom hosted by Walker Zanger and Convo by Design. Uh, I have muted your lines. However, please, please do encourage you to use the chat features to chat, to ask any questions. I will jump in um, and interrupt Josh at any time to ask questions. Again, welcome everyone to the showroom hosted by Walker Zanger. With that, Josh, I'm going to hand it over to you and let you take it away. Perfect. I love it. Thanks, Erica. Welcome, everybody. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. As Erica said, this is the showroom uh, presented by Walker Zanger, and I'm very thankful for that. Joining us today is Matt Mauricio from Dugali Oberfeld. I am really, hang on to your, you know, put the seatbelt on for this one, because this is going to be fun. I'm really excited about this. Here's what we're doing today. We're, we're talking about the origins um, and development of a, of a firm that is doing amazing work for what 25 years here in LA. We're also towards the end of this, we're gonna be taking a look at a very new project that I don't believe anyone's actually seen yet in, in media, it's the Nightingale project. And, and trust me when I tell you, it's stunning. It is absolutely amazing. So here's what we'd like to do. Um, if you like this conversation, I hope you do. Please subscribe to Convo by Design. The podcast episode will air later and you can hear the whole thing again. We'll also put the conversation on YouTube so that you can watch it again and see the images, which you're definitely going to want to do. If you have questions now or through this conversation down at the bottom where the chat feature is, please ask. And um, when the appropriate moment uh presents itself, Erica or I will, uh, will chime in and ask that for you. So please ask away. The more questions, the better. With that, wanted to welcome Matt Mauricio from Dugali Oberfeld. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for doing this. I'm really thrilled to talk to you. And we were talking a little bit before we hit the little red button here 
And is, is it true that, that you guys have, have not done anything like this together before? That's true. We've not, not in the same room. No, it's been too dangerous. So figure now that we have COVID, it's, we're already having more dangerous sitting right here. So why not do it together? Okay, good. Well, listen, welcome. Do me a favor, do us a favor. Will you, can we start, I, I love the, the origin story. Can you start with the firm, how, where you guys discovered each other, how the firm came to be and sort of the origin of, of how it's developed over the last two and a half decades? You want me to start? Yeah, tell the Jerry <laughs> Maguire story. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we've uh, Mo and I met actually in high school, and we knew each other all through college, and ended up, you know, with the partnership that it was it's pretty magical in the sense that we were just saying beforehand, neither Mo or I have ever shouted at each other in twenty five years. Uh, we've really never had any sort of argument of substance, which is pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty strong attestment to what, you know, how we get along. But anyway, we, uh, after college, we decided that we were both interested, Mo in the architectural side, myself in the construction side, didn't really know what we wanted to do specifically other than be in this space. And it kind of, kind of morphed all together from there. And it, it's, uh, we started with, Pretty humbly in the beginning, doing doing real small stuff, kind of scrapping things together and bringing resources together. And Mo, you you just kind of started with the development stuff for, before I did. Yeah, I, I went to uh, we both went to USC. We were in college together. I studied architecture, and I knew pretty early on that I loved architecture and, and I wanted to build, but I did not want to draw. So I started developing. Um, Matt had the background of his father and was on the construction side of things. Uh, so it early on, it really became evident that we would make a really good uh, partnership with his experience in the construction and then my development side. And uh, just started from there, kind of really morphed into something very organic. For clarity purposes, Mo did study a lot more than I did in college. <laughs> are you both, are you both from, LA is LA home. I mean, LA is home, but originally, generally, yeah, general area. Matt is Southern, Southern California. He's yeah. he's from Istanbul. I was born in downtown Istanbul. No, I'm from Mexico City originally. So I moved here uh, for high school, right before high school, and then I've been here ever since. So it's really interesting because in the last 25 years, I think it's safe to say the real estate architecture design community has has changed significantly you know i'm a i'm a native angelino and you can tell by decades here in la one of the things that i really love is i love la i really do and los angeles traditionally has been a place where folks would come mostly from elsewhere to reinvent yourself right to kind of figure out who you are try things out this has been a great place to experiment but because of that, especially on the real on the on the architecture and design side, prior to you know twenty years ago, LA wasn't taken very seriously. And I'm curious when you were coming out of USC, design, development, and architecture, what were what were you thinking about at the time, architecture and and how it, how LA is as an architectural city versus what you wanted to do with it. That's actually a super interesting question. Good question. Um, yeah, really interesting because when you're going to school, especially a school like USC in architecture and being in Los Angeles, you're focused quite a bit on the whole mid-century part of uh, LA design. Los Angeles was the hub of modernist architecture in you know, mid-century. Um, so many of the case study houses here, um, some of the big architects that came out of that, um, that are LA architects, um, even USC professors. So um, the influence was very much a mid-century modernist. And, and that's something I took to very early. But at the time, you know, no one was doing anything like that. LA went through, after being such a showcase uh, city, it really went through a horrible, you know, next couple of decades in the 70s, 80s. And it just started, you know, bastardizing everything. And, you know, we started seeing all the Columbia Savings Mediterranean houses and all of that, which 
I didn't really question so much at that time. It was, hey, we're building the best. We're building the most amazing French chateaus and Italian palazzos and Spanish villas. And that wasn't something I questioned much. But some years into it, once we started really looking at the, we want to break ground and do something different, kind of went back to the roots of, hey, the uh, modernist is really where we should go. And in fact, a lot of the podcasts or, or personal uh, um, interviews that we've done talking, talking about uh, modernism versus uh, you know, minimalism and maximalism or modernism and the origins of modernism and the new modernism uh, that is happening today. So this has become something that in the last 20 years, um, I remember the first project we did that was really modern was in 2000. And back then there was nobody doing anything like this. And it was really a very cool project for us to do because we got to kind of get out of our shoes with uh, what we were doing, nobody had seen anything like it. And, and that, for at least for me personally, it really opened up uh, a real desire to just kind of shift. And I was really anxious and waiting for this to develop into where the marketplace would really accept a modern residence and what that would look like. Um, so it, was, uh, it wasn't conscious to answer your question, but it was uh, fluid. I think what's interesting too is in your work in particular, and we're going to see it in, in a little bit, is this level of, of layered sophistication, right? And what you're talking about, those decades, the, the 70s, the 80s, and, and you know, the 90s, you, you, can, you can see the, the, the sins of our fathers in <laughs> architecturally yeah. speaking in every one of those. And what's interesting too is you continue to see sort of the bastardization of architectural styles, but also how many uh, amazing structures were taken down. And we're kind of, I, I feel like Los Angeles in particular is a victim of its own success. We've taken down all of these structures. You know, one of the Googies, uh, the one on um, Sunset, I guess it was a Chase Bank uh, recently went mm -hmm. down. And there are others, and you, you get into this question of what is significant architecture? What makes it special versus this, this Southern California style of being able to reinvent oneself? And you can take that down because what's going to come up later is going to be even better. That being said, you also have, you know, the, the Schindler's and the, the Neutra, the VDL house in Silver Lake. You've got Silvertop. You've got all of these amazing structures that have managed to survive, I guess, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, how do you view the idea of significant architecture? Because I, I get from, you know, just from our brief time together, that that's, that's the goal. That is the desire to not just create something big, not just to create something lavish or expensive, but really to create something. Architecture is a language, right? And why not make it speak eloquently sophisticated and layered? And it feels like that's what you're going for. Within that, you have this Southern, Southern California ethos that, you know, everything, nothing's permanent. Yeah, I think, I think just to go back a little bit, I think it's important to, to talk about the fact that in order to discover progress, in order to, to embellish progress, would it be in anything, in any of the arts and culture, you need a benchmark of what's good and bad, right? So to your point, you know, if you look at the 80s, and the architecture in '80s, I mean, it was there was it was just awful, right? It was that transition period, and it was also really Los Angeles largely has has come a long way because the art and culture scene has has been so much embellished. I mean, look at look at what we have available now, you know, museums. I mean, incredible museum, incredible artwork. I mean, the art scene is is amazing in LA, where that wasn't the case in the '80s, even in the '90s, right? So, I think that the fabric of all of those things and the culture really support architecture because architecture is somewhat of a, uh, an, an end uh, extrapolation of, of what art and culture are. And it's, it's set in a sense of permanence. And that's the thing that always drove me to this space is the fact that, hey, look, we're creating something that is, is permanent and it's an, it's an emulation of somebody's, uh, you know, vision of how they want to live and bringing in all the art and culture together and putting it in a box, right? And putting it in one place. 
And it's in every, every one of the projects has its own identity, right? And that's the unique part. And that's what I love about this. There's no one house that's the same. There's no one, uh, there's, no, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's no good, there's no bad. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of bad. But what, what, set, what sets in, in the sense of permanence, in, in essence, becomes culture, right? And becomes part of the fabric of, of what, we, what we have today. And that's, that's an important thing to, I think, think about when we're looking at these images and discussing projects. One thing to add to what Matt was saying, because we talk about this a lot, actually, is the permanence, which you, you started saying. But it was, it's very different um, what we see today than, and, and the consciousness of permanence than 20 years ago. Um, I can tell you that 20 years ago, nobody was thinking, hey, how long is this building going to last? Uh, I mean, the reality is uh, it wasn't that long ago that we were using roofing material for waterproofing decks and things like that. I mean, the way that, that things have really evolved, I mean, it, the roof that may have been a 10-year roof or even a five-year roof back then, today we can have 50-year roofs, right? And, and so we're building projects for permanence. And, and one of our, both Matt and I talked very consciously about it and have talked before a lot about the permanence and building something that lasts 100 years. And it, it was kind of a, a very interesting moment and sort of a sad moment. About seven years ago, uh, we got a project where it was a, an old Alec Dugali house. Alec is Matt's father. He had designed it, uh, I think it was built in the 60s. And we were hired to tear it down and build another one. You know, and it was kind of a realization of, you know, we were old. <laughs> it was a realization of, uh, of the fact that, hey, we got to do something different because we can't be tearing houses down. 20, 30 years, 40 years afterwards. And then you see projects that are really well-built, uh, projects that were built in the 20s, you know, these amazing Spanish old Hollywood projects built in the 20s and some of the mid-centuries have been around 50, 70 years. And, and they're great. They're not ready to be torn down. And so it's a, it's a very conscious effort that we talk about now openly with our clients too in making decisions so that they can have a building that number one has is, is got the permanence, is gonna have the longevity but also that it's not going to be just trendy and go out of style. And then in 10 years, they feel like they need to change it completely or in 20 years, tear it down because it's already poorly out of style. Let's, let's explore that a little bit more. I'm, I'm curious what, what is backing up a second? Cause we, we touched on this briefly before, you know, Los Angeles is in, in my opinion and, and others, a world-class design destination city. And, and I believe that to be true. 20 years ago, that was not the case. And because architecture is designed for 100 years, you know, you're not designing architecture for, for 20, 25, 30 years. I think that was the problem in the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s. Because of that, you have this new attention to detail. And I'm curious, you know, what, what that says for a city like LA. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't want to make this LA centric and LA specific because you, you work elsewhere, you know, you have, you have projects in, in other locations, but I do think that LA is this microcosm because we've sort of accomplished, you know, it wasn't a, a city that was taken very seriously from the arts architecture and design standpoint, but it is a world-class city now. And I don't think that anyone could really argue that. That being said, I want to kind of, I want to weave in the current situation of where we find ourselves today. So where we find ourselves today is hopefully, right, we're, we're coming out of, um, we're in the middle of the end of, of this pandemic, beginning to middle of the end. Well, a hundred years ago, you know, we, we had a pandemic with the Spanish flu and, and in, the, in the 1920s, Le Corbusier was out there talking about this minimalist, clean, some would say anti, antiseptic, right? But this, this idea of, of what's possible. And out of, you know, out of that 1918 to 1920 into the 20s, there were some amazing developments in architecture and design. And I'm curious, based on what you've seen now and what you guys know and what people are asking for and the fact that we're probably on the precipice of an absolute revolution in design and architecture, I'm curious what you're seeing and how the past year has affected the way 
you think and the firm acts and what you think the work will be um, in the next 10 years? I wanted to go back to one thing. I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, architecture today, as well as art is, is really a global is it's, it's shared globally, right? So you've got, you know, when, when it, when a, you know, in the, in the eighties, you know, pre, pre, you know, eighties, nineties, ideas were really not largely explored together, meaning that they weren't shared. And I think that's really important because you can go online today and really find and dig and do research, which is part of our process, right? Is understanding when we have a, you know, specific, uh, you know, design element that somebody wants to run down or include, we can do research online and we can go, oh, wow, look, there's 10 fantastic, you know, iterations of, of this particular aspect. And so I think that that is part of what we're seeing of, of, of quality in general, in everything, right? In architecture and art, I mean, it, it moves more on a, on a global basis, but your, is your question specifically as it relates to the pandemic, how, what sense of permanence will be baked into our space or what, what, is that what we're? No, no, but thank you for asking. Um, I, I think my, my point is, and, and it's funny because I, I, I'm sure I'm like you and everyone else watching this, I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm kind of sick of talking about the pandemic. Um, I am, Very. I am, mm -hmm. I am just really tired of talking about it. I think we're all ready for this thing to, to be over. That being said, to not look in depth at what everyone's struggles have been specifically as they relate to home, specifically as it relates to the future of workplace and hospitality, specifically as it relates to, you know, if anyone's got any questions as to is design and architecture going to change dramatically um, over the next five to 10 years, try to, try to call someone and see if you can get a pool put in before 2022. Um, the answer is no most likely, unless you're a friend. Yeah, but true. because of that, look at how people are looking differently at their homes. Look at how companies are looking differently at their workplaces. Look at how uh, hotel you know, hoteliers and, and hospitality is looking at the experience that they want to provide for their clients, customers, and, and friends. I think that it all goes back to sort of that, that idea of the experience in architecture. Not who it's, not who it's, you know, not who's living there necessarily, but how they're living there and specifically designed for individuals to, to make that experience so much better. Look, we haven't really focused intently on air quality, water quality, noise abatement, those kinds of things. It was big, you know, does it look good? Is it pretty? Is it beautiful? Is it stunning? Is it expensive? Is it luxurious? I think the adjectives are changing. So specifically, you know, that's kind of where I wanted to go. Maybe the things you don't see as much, but how they function. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you, the focus is going to be people actually truly living and truly experiencing their home on, you know, longer periods of time. I mean, look at, look at what happened to everyone. I mean, we're, you know, we were all... Uh, you know, when we were quarantining, everyone was at home and people are realizing, wow, there's there's some things that we want to change as far as how we work at home. Uh, I think connectivity is huge. I think that, you know, uh, obviously home offices, uh, you know, are, are, you know, home entertainment. Like you said, the pool is an excellent example, outdoor spaces. But I also think on a more granular level, the systems and the mechanical electrical plumbing systems are, that are being put in which is, you know, high level air filtration, high level air set, you know, com compartmentalization of, of airflow, compartmentalization of, uh, you know, how that they're filtered, uh, you know, shared spaces, there's more, there's more, you know, people are being more mindful of how, how they're being shared with people, how people are actually getting in and out of the house, how houses are serviced, isolating, you know, service areas so that people from that they don't know are not entering, you know, where they're, where the family is living. I think those are things that are going to be really fascinating to see how those are permanently baked into not only design, but construction uh, run all the way through the industry. I mean, I think it's, it will definitely, it's just like after a, a major event of, you know, what we see normal today from 9-11, right? From, from that terrible event. Well, 
you know, now it's normal for us to go through security and take off our shoes and so forth and so on. And that's a fascinating, for me, it's fascinating to think about what will bake into our lives with a sense of permanence as a result of the pandemic and as it relates to our, to our industry. I think it, it, one of the things that's really important to kind of grasp is um, the, there's been a gigantic tectonic, tectonic shift in what's happening in our lifestyles, right? And, and the way that we approach living in the future. Um, I'm on the board at USC at the School of Architecture and it's, and it's a conversation with kids now and preparing as they start coming back to school, basically tackling the design of the future in every arena, like you spoke about from hospitality to residential to office to everything. In, in, in the arena that we work in, we are seeing this up close and personal. Uh, it didn't take the entire pandemic to be done for, for this to be, you know, show what, what clients want. Clients want what they want now because they're seeing it and, and maybe even more so because it is so fresh. And so, you're seeing real estate is going uh, bananas everywhere. Um, so many people are shifting from from cities to bigger homes to different uh, uh, ways of living just because they're reacting to what they're seeing today. And that, what Matt was just saying, that's happening now in real time. Long term, we don't know exactly what the long term repercussions will be, but I can tell you they're going to be tremendous. They're going to be huge because there has definitely been a very difference, uh, very different consciousness about what they want in the way they live and and that's happening immediately so we're we're already in projects today that projects that were already even started pre-covid we are making changes today to accommodate for those those shifts even things as simple as storage of you know storage storage of data storage of food storage of supplies i mean those things are all being you know recalibrated into the designs now hey we want we want to be able to have you know control our own data in-house. We want to be able to store it on, we want to store our food. We want to store supplies. We want to be able to have, you know, those spaces for long-term because we all know that we were all, we were all rushing to the market and, and, you know, fighting for a roll of toilet paper. It was, you know, I think that will forever scar us. Boy, you are not kidding. That is so true. And the, 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 the toilet paper crisis notwithstanding, I do think it's interesting to back up a second and to look as a case study, to look at Flint, Michigan and water, to look at Texas and electricity, to look at Southern California and Colorado for air quality as it relates to wildfires. I mean, look, let's be honest, they, they have earthquakes in Oklahoma and Texas now because of fracking. There are different things that are happening around the world. I think sometimes it's easy to forget that not everything is stable. Not everything is gonna be provided uh, at a suitable level of quality, which comes back to the idea of architecture and design and home as that safe environment, work as that super functional uh, hospitality, a place to go and just chill, recharge, relax. That being said, you also talked about this idea of, of this new idea of modernism. And I'm curious, your thoughts on how these things all come together. And it's interesting too, maybe layered on top of that a little bit, the challenges that you have building in Southern California and California in general, because of the requirements and the restrictions for building here are just immense. And I'm trying to think about how that is, a, is an accelerator and a multiplier when you talk about building the types of projects that Dugali Oberfeld built. So all those things taken into account and this idea of this, this I don't want to call it modern modernism, but this new idea of, of modernism work, working in all these things together and all of these new things that people have been asking for. I can't remember a time uh, in my lifetime anyway, where people have asked and been so specific with the things that they want in their homes now. Yeah, but you know, something is, it's interesting. I mean, there, these changes will happen and what people want changes for sure. But, um, you know, one of the things that you just talked about are the restrictions and the, um, the constraints in which we have to build in Southern California. And at the end of the day, here we are, you know, in Los Angeles talking about all of the uh, challenges building here. But at the same time, this is something that uh, when you and I met 
at uh, West Edge and we're talking about Los Angeles and the world stage. We're also talking about uh, modernism and the opportunity of what you're calling now a new modernism, you know, modernism revisited or whatever you want to call it. We've all come up with a hundred different names because um, there's always going to be challenges. Everything you do, uh, you could argue that in, in the mid-century, the challenges were the, the technology. You did not have glass technology. So these homes just they were incredible, but they did not work because they were glass boxes, right? Their glass houses are super hot. You could not control them from a temperature point of view. Uh, so many different uh, changes that have happened that the challenges become something new, but the opportunities grow to be much bigger. And so I think what you're starting to see here is really because of our weather, um, it's become, Los Angeles has become a real uh, center of development of new ideas. And this is what happened in mid-century. Again, same thing. You couldn't have done these case study houses in London. They just would have not worked. Um, so Los Angeles, as it's happening in the art world, happening in the architectural world, the amount of innovation and, and, and embracing new technologies and new opportunities is allowing us to really redefine modernism in a different way where once we settle on what is a proper style and what is what people will accept, you really can expand into how to, how to just push the limits. You know, what's the biggest piece of glass you can get? Um, what's the, you know, wh what is the newest, most incredible um, air conditioning system so we are energy efficient? How do we get these houses to be zero emissions? I mean, that's something that we today have no ability to get to, you know, to a, a zero footprint house. It, it, it's extremely expensive and it's almost unachievable. It's where we're headed, right? So these are the challenges that become the opportunities. And that's where we're working towards is, is kind of uh, how to marry both the lifestyle, the technology and the ability to create something that is going to be permanent and that is not going to go out of style. Because that's another thing too. You look at, that's why to me, I, this is a focus off of Los Angeles and Southern California. If you go to Georgia and you go to Atlanta and you look at the, the houses there, we can't start talking about the style of, of modernism there because it doesn't exist. It's a different style, different thing, different vibe altogether. But for here and for, for what Los Angeles is in its own microcosm, micro uh, ecology, it is super important to look at the, 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 the challenges and then the opportunities. And this is shifting as we speak. I mean, we're going to have a podcast with you in a year from now. We're going to talk about all the new things that have come out you know, because it literally is moving that fast. I'm just embracing it. Modern materials, right? I mean, as modern engineering, modern materials, they also change the aesthetics of the way everything unfold, right? I mean, the laminates and surfaces, I mean, you know, 10, you know, five years ago, we would never have, you know, you, the stones, synthetic stones and synthetic surfaces, those are all changing, have material effects on the end result of design. I'm curious. One thing I wanted to ask you, just as a follow-up, and then Erica, I'd love to I'd love to go into Nightingale. I, I, just as a follow-up, you know, you mentioned this this is zero. I, the the idea of a zero footprint, right? Um, is that is that something that is top of mind? I, I guess a better question for it is: How does that relate between product design? functionality and cost. And, and I think, you know, cost is sometimes taken into account be, due to the overall nature of a project, but I'm curious as to overall affordability and getting a home to be completely tantamount to off the, off the grid. I think, you know, with Tesla and the battery um, technology that they have, the ability for solar, the ability for that, the way some of these new products are made really is helpful for those purposes. And I think it's, it's on, it's at the top of everyone's mind right now. When it comes to sourcing those product, those products and having those products available to you, as well as the technology and the, the means to, to lay it out on a residential scale, where do you think we are with that? That was the first part of it. And the second part of it, because it's been impossible to really go in and travel this year, uh, R and D seems to have suffered a little bit because people don't know what's available to them. So I'm curious, 
how do you stay on top of that? And what have you found um, recently? And is is this a is this a possible is this an idea that is probable in the next five to ten years? Uh, so, as it relates to the to the to creating a house that's zero emissions, I mean, it, it's it's virtually impossible to have you know completely benign of carbon footprint, whatever you want to say, but it's it, it often comes down to cost, right? So these things these things just are discussions that you're having with clients, and people are making it comes down to personal decisions as to how much they'd like to invest. In, in, in pushing it in that direction, right? Because, it, it, you know, when you're, when you're talking about our projects, which are extremely large, it takes, you know, monumental amount of, of you know, battery backup, solar, you know, you know, there's a million different things that can happen, right? You've got, you've got solar for, for et cetera, et cetera. So the clients are actually telling us really at what level they want to be. Is it possible? Yeah, it's, it's possible to create a, create these homes that are pretty, you know, pretty, you know, pretty, uh, you know, zero emissions, but most people don't want to spend the money to do that. Um, your second part of the question was how I'm trying to, I'm trying to track. There was a, it was a, there was a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me let me build on that yeah. just while we're on that thought. The you know the these shifts and the consciousness of people being uh, agreeing to use materials and do you know building uh, building technologies that will be more green. Every day that continues to open up. Uh, first of all, people are, every day are more conscious about it. We're all more more conscious. If I would have given you a, a veggie patty, a Boca burger, ten years ago, you probably would have hated it, you know. <laughs> and and today, you know, it's like my daughter. We go we go get burgers, and she's like, "Well, I want the uh, Impossible Burger, Dad." Right? We are. It's same thing in 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 this industry. We couldn't have had client music clients to not use a natural stone, for example, because it was just not. You know, if it's not natural stone, then it's not valuable is cheap right and so that the whole awareness is changing in everything in interior internal external materials both meaning the materials that you see and the materials that you don't see are insulation that couldn't be anything worse for the environment than the insulation we used to use right and that's all changing now so uh you know we're using denim and using other different materials that are going to be that are already much more um environmentally friendly these are all baby steps, but every every baby step counts. And there is this awareness and this consciousness. It it travels across both the manufacturers um, and the developers of ideas all the way to the clients. And so maybe the last year might not have been the best for R and D, but we've made a really long uh, uh, we've come a long way in the prior years, and it's going to continue. And, you know, air technology, for example, you, you touched on it. Um, everything is now so aware that everybody that, that, that is in the air conditioning business, this is all they're thinking about, right? So it, it, it's happening literally on a daily basis. And, and there is this awareness travels across the entire industry. I can tell you that, that whether you're talking to an architect, almost any architect today, to the interior designers and to the clients and obviously our contractors, it's everybody's very aware of this and, and figuring out how to make this affordable because that does go to your other point of, is this just unaffordable? It's so expensive, you can't even touch it. That was the case to some degree continues to be the case, um, but it's it's changing so that eventually it will be the norm and it will be, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bullish that in the next 10 years, we'll be able to build uh, an economically friendly, uh, you know, a, or affordable, yeah, affordable, uh, fully zero, emission. zero emission house. Yeah. I, I think that 10 years is a, 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 it's just my prediction, but I think that in 10 years we will have, we'll say, here's our, what we've done and it'll be there. Because now it's, the, now it's, now it's the focus, right? hundred percent. Yeah. You know, what's also an interesting, interesting something to think about is how Los Angeles being a hub and you've got all these other, Primary hubs that we work, primary cities that we work in, for example, Orange County, um, for example, you know, San Diego County, Rancho Santa Fe, and and nor you know Northern California, all these other markets that we're in. It's interesting to see how 
Los Angeles and, and the design kind of blends in and bleeds into those and leads the, the path, so to speak. It used to be New York led the path for fashion, then LA got it, and then it kind of went, went in that circuit. Now it's California, now it's Los Angeles, and you're seeing, we're seeing now in, in, in places that we love and are, are very active in, like Orange County, Newport Beach, they're, they're starting to, all, all of that quality is, is, is rising and all of that, um, you know, the, the quality of the architecture, quality of design, quality of the construction, all of that kind of rises around the hub of Los Angeles. I'm not sure why I brought that up. But I well, <laughs> listen, you know what? I think that's a really great point. And I'm curious, do you think that in large part the, that quality is rising because the the materials that you have to work with are now substantially better as as well? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the factors. One of the factors is the fact that, you know, like I said earlier, people can now see the day like we're going to be viewing this house that we did. You know, somebody's going to go through this and go, wow, look at that amazing detail, right? What did they use? How did they use those fins and how are those fins attached? Somebody who's building a house looks at it and goes, I love the way those fins articulate against the, you know, the exoskeleton, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, an architect in a different market will pick that up and have some sort of their own extrapolation of what that idea is. And it's all shared. It's, instant, it's instantaneous, right? And that, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be you, bought, you went down and bought books. And, you know, my, my kids, my three kids at home can't really understand this, but we actually had books, kids, that we, we went to a bookstore and bought and we had a library and we'd go through the library and you'd, you'd pick one, you'd pick one picture out of it, you'd photocopy it. Yes, we have photocopiers, kids. And, you know, put it as like part of a lookbook and then, and then the lookbook, yeah. but, but, it, but it didn't go beyond the, the office, right? It was a great idea. Well, now sky's the limit, you know, you research online is just, you know, it's, it's infinite. So I think the, the quality bleeds into a greater, you know, more markets. And that's that also education, right? You know, when we built that first house in 2000 and we're trying to get, you know, perfect riglets, right. And perfect details uh, that our subs weren't used to using because they, you're used to you doing crown molding and base molding and all of a sudden everything is disappears going to, uh, you started earlier talking about, layering and sophistication. We're asking somebody to, to really put a lot of layering without seeing it, put a ton of sophistication with simplicity, and they don't know what that means, and they don't know how to do it. It was very, very difficult and very expensive to get those details done at the time. As you know, we, we turned the corner after the, uh, the, the downturn of 08, the world crisis and the economy, and when we came back, the wealth had shifted to a younger generation who wanted to see much more contemporary buildings. Uh, people, good point. people did not really know how to build them. So when you talk about these white boxes, it's because they would not know how to execute a proper building. And so that's all they knew how to do. You'd ask a drywaller to come do a perfect level five drywall going to regulates and he hadn't done it because he always had casing around the doorway to hide it, right? So the, the level of what we saw was horrendous. Um, very few people could do it right, and it was very expensive to do it right. As more and more people learn, going back to the education and understand how to do it, that drywaller no longer has to learn that detail and teach it to all their employees. This is kind of now a standard way for them to do drywall. And same thing with, you know, all these other details, lighting details that are super, super detailed and sophisticated and everything else. There's a consciousness that the guy that was doing the you know, wood ceilings might not have known, hey, I got to lay it out in a certain way. Well, now it's kind of a consciousness. Things have to line up and there's a, a real education in the field. And that's what allows it that the entire body of work that you're seeing is better. People always used to ask me, I'm from Mexico City. Everything is concrete. Like, you know, why do you guys build with wood? Like, people don't know how to build with concrete here. Well, why? Because it's so expensive. Why is it so expensive? In Mexico, it's the opposite. It would be expensive to build with wood. That's because that's what people are used to, right? Uh, the moment you shift and if all of a sudden it would be, hey, wood is so expensive, we can't use it. Everything would shift to concrete and building with concrete would be a lot less expensive. It's just what you're used to and what, is, what, what people know how to do. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to think about. It, our, our clients today are younger that they continue to get younger and younger 
right? Yeah. And our projects are continuing to get on a scale as far as just dollar value, right? These are these are really these are massive projects, and our, our clientele is, is a lot is very is pretty young, mm-hmm. and they continue to get here. And I think that's probably and I I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just thinking out loud here, which is always a bad idea for me. But anyway, out loud um, in public. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, I forgot this is live, but anyway, I won't say bad words. I promise, honey. Um, so we uh, what what was what I'm thinking is that it it might have something. There might be a, a very strong correlation between the age of the amount of you know wealth that has been amassed in this in this country today and internationally through technology and which you know arguably is the largest you know creation of wealth since the you know post-industrial era the industrial era it's all it's all tech right so these a lot of our clients are are young and they're they're they have a desire to and the ability to be less tied to one particular style and they like cool and what's you know forward oh I love that. And while, while you're explaining this, and I love, I love that, I, I, just, I feel like this is a, a natural segue into Nightingale. And with, with that idea of what is, what is being desired now, where, where these ideas are, I don't like to use the word trends. Um, because I, I think, you know, there's nothing, trend is great. It's once you add a Y to it that it becomes a dirty word. Um, but sometimes trend and trendy get confused. Tell me about Nightingale. Tell me about um, the 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 origin of this project and what the what the vision was at, when it was on the the drafting board. Well, I mean, that's a it's a little bit of a tough question because that's a this is a project of one of our clients. Um, the architect is Zoltan Pali of SPF. Um, and it's you know, ultimately his drafting board, right? Uh, we're executing the vision. But with that said, this is a project as we, as we do with most projects today, we get involved very early on. Um, we can talk about that a little bit later. The whole pre-construction process uh, is a very robust one for us. And this was no different. We were actually, were involved before the architect. Uh, the client is a friend of mine, friend of ours. Um, and uh, we, we really became part of the team even before the architect and were part of the whole process. So this is one of those projects where we can talk about the process. Uh, And this process was a a long one for this client. It went through several iterations from what the architect wanted originally to what the client wanted. The client was very, very specific. But what you can see is that there's a lot of things going on in here. Uh, Going back to sophistication layering, this is uh, to a certain degree a minimalist project, but it has tremendous amount of sophistication and a, and a huge amount of layering, which adds to the complexity of the project. Uh, we don't have, a, I don't think, a, a shot from above. Um, the project looked like a butterfly from the air. And so there's a certain... An aerial? I don't, I don't think we put an aerial in, in here, but there is a certain uh, poetical... Uh, you know, uh, this, you know, aspect to the project in, in the idea of a butterfly kind of uh, in the hills that, that can fly and span the views, right? The, the project has a lot of really cool things when you look at uh, longevity and, and, and permanence, right? The, you can see the entire structure of the whole lower level is all concrete. It's all architectural concrete, which is unbelievable. It's hard to, to do, um, hard to get perfect but it really creates a, a stability on the slope. And you can see that that, that, that concrete going throughout the entire interior, inside, in the entire interior of it. I don't know if we have any interior shots of it, but. There's... Yeah, there, there, there are some interior shots, we'll yeah. see it, but you can kind of see a, a demarcation line. You see a, where the uh, aluminum slats end or where they start and the concrete where they meet. That is your definition of a whole lower level, which really the concrete just uh, cements this into the ground. And it really, it, when you talk about permanence, that's not going anywhere. Um, not in 50, not in 100 years, not in 200 years. That will be there for as long as you want that to be there. The entire structure above it is really a steel uh, structure. The, the amount of wood is just infill, but most of it is a steel structure with glass, which again, is not going anywhere in 100 years. Um, and then the full, the, the entire rain screen, the facade of this is all aluminum slats. Again, it goes to the permanence of not having stucco that eventually is going to 
erode and crack. Um, the aluminum is not going anywhere. It's, uh, it, it has permanence. It's a, it's a very benign material. And so the house is really uh, designed quite a bit with that in mind that, that the house just doesn't really require a lot of maintenance. And that is a huge part of what our clients are looking for today. This, th what's sorry to interrupt you, but ahead, what yeah. what I was going to say is that there, if you if you look at the image that's up now, this is a it the house is designed so that it's an indoor outdoor. It's a convertible house. So that that what you're looking in that in that that entire upper you know the skylight completely is automated and it opens to open air. So what you can do is you can get the you know, you can open all the windows and doors and then open the skylight. And essentially this is an outdoor house. I mean, it's I like just a convertible idea. Yeah. It's, it, it's just, cool. it's just like, it's, it, let's call it the spider. It's a, it's, there you go. That's a great picture of that. It becomes, you know, it's a convertible house. So it, the lid comes off the, the, the doors open up and, and now you have, you're essentially living outdoors. The other thing that I want to point out is that this is all of these materials, although this is contemporary or modern, they're all organic. And, and it's got a very organic feel and it's got a, a timeless feel to the project. And, and Zoltan does a great job at that as at creating, you know, I mean, look, this is, you're seeing the exposed I-beams in this picture you're looking at now. And that's, those are actually structural I-beams. You can columns. see columns, excuse me, and, the, and the, how they're open and you can see the, the pool in the background. So this is really an indoor outdoor space. And that is to your point earlier about, you know, maximizing what's beautiful. One of the most beautiful things about Los Angeles, which is the weather, right? Or right. Southern California for that matter is the weather. And this is really maximizing, you know, maximizing that. I mean, this is all, these are all, yeah. So I, I just want to go back one image. I didn't mean to interrupt you because that this image is actually a really important one. And part of what you saw with the butterfly effect before, um, these houses that are glass houses tend to be uh, extremely energy uh, efficient. And, this house is designed in a way that will be uh, much more energy efficient. And so this trellis is a perfect example. You can see how far it protrudes. It has a tremendous span, which is very cool, but it, that allows you to have a tremendous amount of shade and protection from the sun because this is a southern exposure. And also the, uh, the uh, heating and, and cooling system for the house is a VRF system, which is a much more high, uh, energy efficient system. They uses uh, uh, basically. It, it, I'm not going to describe how it works, and I'm going to get you myself know, into trouble here. By the way, you're, you're smarter than you look. You know that. Yeah, but I'm not going to get into the science of it. But it's a very energy efficient uh, system. So you start to see between the materials um, and the way that they are designed into the structure, and now even in the design of the structure, trying to be a little more energy conscious about it. It's funny because normally when we do this, I, I always have so many questions about why'd you do this and why'd you do that? And I, for this, I, I'm just so enjoying, and it's probably not great for an audio podcast, but I'm really just enjoying the imagery of all of this. And, and I'm, I'm curious as everything, it feels like everything was thought through so that it all works together. The living spaces work with the transition spaces. The transition spaces work with the, you know, the service areas. I just, I think it's amazing how everything sort of flows together. And that wall off to the right, it, it can, Erica, can we stop with that? Yeah. Can you guys explain this to me and the, and the stairs and the glass and just everything? It feels, it doesn't feel stark. And I, I mean that in the most complimentary way possible because, you know, there's hard edges and, hard materials, but it feels, there's a level of comfort to this. Um, it's just, it's exquisite. Want to talk about that? Or you want me to do that? You, you go for it. You, so you're, that's part of your... Well, I'll, I'll, from the architectural perspective, that's the exact uh, idea is the spaces flow into each other, not through hallways, right? And so this is one of the things, Zoltan um, does this very, very well. You can see there's really no, wood, no hallways. Wood screen. Yeah, the, the wood screen, because this is your atrium. In essence, what you're looking at in this picture, the entire lower floor is really dug out. It's, it's just excavated. But it's not a basement because of the way that, that this is designed with this gigantic skylight, which opens up our, our, uh, convertible, our, our convertible spider house. Um, and there's glass everywhere because the, 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 this lower level goes from all the way from front to back. Um, you 
you have the ability to get light. Of course, this is a night picture, but you have a, an ability to get light into all the rooms. There's skylights everywhere. So we bring down light into the lower level. And this feature wall, what you're talking about, is one of the things that is the heart of the house, right? It's the warmth, it's the paneling, it's the detailing of this, of this uh, design, which is prevalent around the house. Um, we don't have enough time to get into all the details, but this design, this idea repeats itself in different parts of the house. And, and is what makes it warm, which is one of the biggest challenges when you talk about these, these modern slash contemporary houses to create a warm space when you're talking about mostly concrete, steel, and glass. And here you see that it is very achievable. It's a big feat for us that we try to achieve on all the projects that we're involved with. There you see a salt room. So that's a sauna with a, with a salt. That's actually salt wall. When I look at this, I see a certain level of wellness and luxury that's absolutely amazing into the home gym. All of these things are just, again, an exquisite example of all the things that, that people have been asking for over the last 11 or 12 months, which clearly this was, this was being designed well in advance of that. But I, I really do love how you've taken, you know, everything has been sort of accounted for. And again, juxtaposing concrete against a warmer wood has, has really led to an, an amazing sense of balance in this space. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, the wellness has so been something it's, it's uh, like you said, it's been a trend, I guess, or it's been a feature that has been becoming more prevalent is, you know, home office, home gym, wellness center, um, you know, those are all things that are now, I think, going to be bolstered moving forward in architecture. The other thing, too, is, you know, it, it's so cliche. Mies van der Rohe said less is more, and, and I fully subscribe to that. But not every house, that, that doesn't apply everywhere. Um, one of the things that I, we really live by is uh, that more is not better. Better is better. Right. And so the materials, the design, it's not about putting more of it. It's just about putting better of it. Um, look at this screen wall right there. There's a little more detail. It's uh, it, it isn't about making all the paneling, the house like that. It's about making it better the way that it's made, the design of it. There's there's a three dimensionality on, on these. You can see that the depth of these uh, of the screen isn't the same all across. It's almost. Uh, has nothing at the top of depth and then it goes quite deep and it goes shallow at the bottom. That kind of detailing is is what differentiates it because that goes to the level of sophistication. It would have been really easy to just do a pattern and just put a CNC machine on it or laser cut it. But it's sophistication of being able to have it at varying depths is that somebody actually put thought into how to make this more sophisticated. Which then, which then acts as a light shade for the rooms behind, which, which creates the light shading behind. So the, that screen creates a unique pattern and experience for the rooms that are behind. If I could just jump in here, because I have one question about this yes. amazing bathroom. Can, can you do me a favor and walk me? This is a material question because that stone is amazing. Where did the slabs come from? And from the fabrication standpoint, how involved are you in the fabrication of it to, to really define the veining? How, how was this all put together? Well, the, the stone is from Italy. Um, you know, the, the, the better stones, especially when we're talking about uh, stones like this, this is an arabescato. Um, they, most of them are coming from Italy. What, what's, you know, this is something that you can look at a, at a, at a 50s house and, uh, and we've been doing book matching forever. What's changed in the industry and what you see in here, which is really marvelous, is the fact that you can now take slabs. These slabs were purchased, um, digitized, and the photography was laid into exact, the exact wall layout. So we can actually see in a, in a plan what this is going to look like before they even cut it. And, and so that allows you to plan that we were able to get, because of the way this lab's laid out, we're able to get not just the walls book match, but be able to take that grain of the walls or the, the, the veins down the wall and then across the floor in front of you. And that kind of is a different layer, again, going to layering, a different layer that we're able to add of sophistication in here that we couldn't always do. But by seeing that and laying it out all in essentially a photocopy, essentially a photocopy of the actual real slab, which mm -hmm. is in 
you know, matted up on a board just like this in Italy and you're able to approve it. And the other thing to mention is the etching in the actual, in the pattern etching. It's hard to really tell in, in this. I don't know if there's another picture of it, but there, there's in the backsplash, there is a very similar, which replicates the rain, replicates that wood screen we were looking at earlier. Mm. So you're taking that similar design and you're applying it just monochromatically to the surfaces within the soap shelf and within the backsplash of it. So there's that theme, that geometric theme that runs throughout, although it's very subtle and you have to, you have to be up close in order to, to appreciate it. It, it is definitely consistent throughout. And, and Josh, this is the world. I, I, I thought of that idea. It was I'm almost idea. This is the world debut of this house. There's no one seen these pictures yet. So, um, we're going to have these up on our website pretty soon, and, and then everybody will be able to see the detailing that Matt's talking about. That's that, but that shot of the pool is incredible. It, yeah. it is incredible, and um, I feel like we've we've come we've come full circle because it's one thing to to start a conversation and talk about you know this layered sophistication, which has kind of become the theme of this particular conversation, and then to to show it demonstrated in a real world project, which is just absolutely amazing. Um, I am I I am cognizant for to everyone's time. We're we're right up at uh, at one o'clock. What I wanted to do, I know that there were a couple of questions and I, I want to actually get to those in just one second. The first thing I'd like to say is, Matt, Mo, thank you guys so much for doing this. Thank you for being here and, and walking us through this and taking the time to be in this conversation. Um, I really, thank really do appreciate us. it. Thank you, this thank is, you for having us. Absolutely. It's been an honor. This is the showroom. Uh, part of Convo, Convo by Design presented by Walker Zanger. If you like what you heard, please go and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get this episode automatically when it's downloaded. And we'll also let you know when it's on uh, YouTube. With that, if if you have to go, because, uh, you know, we try to respect your time, please do. A aside from that, I, I actually did want to touch on two questions. If you guys have a minute, the, sure. the, first, one, the first one was, um, Marissa Young asked, what do you use for waterproofing decks now? And it seems like such a simple question, but I bet there's a great answer. I mean, that, that depends on, that depends on uh, the application, right? It's, there's so many, what's going over the surface? Is it an exposed surface? Uh, you know, there's, that's, that's like saying, you know, what, you know, it's a, it's a, I appreciate the question. It's a good question, but uh, you know, there's, Typically, the systems are three to four layers, which are which have a mix applied with sheet metal, rigid at all, you know, ninety degree angles or all angles. Um, you know, there's a lot of manufacturers that we prefer. A peel and stick is not what we, we've gone away from. A peel and stick, we've gone away from anything that's a that's a pliable surface. Typically, a roll-on multi-surface. Um, you know, the major major brands are. Are, are all that. Did that answer the question? I, yeah, no, I think it did. Yeah. I think that was great. And then the next question was from Teresa Campbell, who asked, will commercial building requirements change? For example, if only two people can ride in a standard elevator, will buildings change height and, and so forth? I, I think maybe to adjust that question a little bit is, do you see fundamental changes in building requirements and building codes? Knowing that, especially where we are, codes and, and, they and standards change all the time. And mostly I think it's more industry-driven then put upon you, but I'm, I'm curious as it relates to um, standards of, of building, building materials, best practices, do you see that changing? Yeah. I mean, I, I, we're seeing, we're seeing, uh, you know, MEP mechanical electrical plumbing in the last five years has become as predominant and, and, and uh, inspected, so to speak, as structural is. You know, structural is, so it used to be where you have structural set of plans and you have the architectural and you kind of fill in the rest. Well, now mechanical, electrical, plumbing, all of those are, are really highly uh, inspected and, high, and the detail that's required in order to get any sort of plans and specifications both on a commercial and a residential side is just exponential. Um, and in terms of COVID, I think that it's, it's too early to tell. I mean, it, I, I think there will be some changes, but I think that those are going to be more driven by 
what the public demands then driven by what the city will demand. You know, if right. you're going to go all of a sudden an elevator that you're able to have 300 pounds uh, or 600 pounds and that four people and all of a sudden you reduce that to two people, I don't think that's going to be a change. I think it's going to be more of a change of what the public is going to demand and, and the market's going to, re, you know, it's going to react according to what that demand is. Awesome. I love it. Um, Matt, Mo, thank you. You guys are the best. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mo, for your time. Thank you, Walker Zanger and Thermosol, for your partnership. And thank you for listening. Without you, there is no joy in doing this for me. You are so greatly appreciated. My hope is to bring you inspiration and sublime design through these conversations to give you that extra push to be the most creative designer you can be. I I think we did that here. I hope so anyway. Please make sure you are subscribing to the show so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X and ConvoByDesign.com. Be well and remember to take today first. Mm -hmm.